Hi, this is John, and today on Theocast, Justin and I are going to talk about interpreting God's Word. Do we just need Jesus and the Bible to fully understand everything that God has revealed to us? Are systems, confessions, and creeds bad? Do they influence negatively? And is it safe to say that we can actually read God's Word without having a system? We are going to explain what biblical theology is and what the history of Christianity has believed throughout time about interpreting God's word. And in our members podcast, we talk about how all of scripture is Christian scripture, including the Old Testament, Uh, some thoughts on dispensational theology and how your system of interpreting God's word will affect your assurance. We hope you enjoy. A simple way for you to help support Theocast and join the Reformation is by shopping at Amazon. That's right. Everything that you purchase there, they will take a percentage of it and donate it to our ministry. All you have to do is go to smile.amazon.com and then search for Theocast Inc. and choose us as the supporting donation. To learn more about this and other ways of supporting us, you can go to theocast.org slash give. Welcome to Theocast. Encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations and lively ones at that about the Christian life we from so, a man. reformed uh, from a reformed perspective. If you don't know what reform means, we just did a podcast on the five points of reformed theology. You can go back and listen to that episode. Today, your hosts are John Mock. Oh man, I started off with myself. Actually, we're going to start with Justin. Justin Purdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And John Moffat, pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. It has been a lively morning, as you can already tell this morning. We are already, off to a rolling start. And it's going to be a lively podcast. So I'm a good full coffee cup in, which always means I'm ready to roar. JP, hey, give the people what they've been anticipating all week. Every Wednesday, they're oh, thinking, man. hmm, I want to know what Justin likes and what he doesn't like. I'm sure that's what they've been uh, up at all night week, man. Thinking about, yep. yeah. Wednesday morning, can't, sleep. can't wait. Can't sleep yep. on Tuesday night because Wednesday morning's you got it. Well, I am two cups of coffee in, which is normal for me. I'm in the Eastern time zone, so I'm an hour ahead of John. Uh, I don't know how hopped up I am. Um, caffeine doesn't seem to do a lot for me, but my morning cup of coffee is a comfort. And now I will go on to the pro con. So I wow. am pro. I am pro. People eating with utensils, so like using forks and things. I'm, I'm for mm-hmm. that. I am con having to teach my children how to do so. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very it's a very difficult process. At least it is in the Purdue house uh, to get our kids to eat effectively with utensils. And the thing that I think maybe is mm, I don't know. It just kind of makes me go, yeah, I'd rather not do this. Is every time. I'm trying to work with my small kids about how to use the fork and I, and I grab the fork that they've been using. There's like this layer of just like grimy, <laughs> sticky nastiness all over it all the time, <laughs> all the time. I mean, let, let the listener understand, right? I mean, I think if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. It's like, not only are your child's hands all the time, just kind of like grimy and sticky and gooey, but like everything they touch is as well. And so, yeah, I go to pick up the fork and help my little son or my little daughter. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I feel like I need to put like gloves on to do this yep. because it's just not, yep. it's just not sanitary and not, not cool. I don't know. So there that is. Uh, it's good to eat with a fork and um, I will be glad when, when the training is over. 
Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, when, Let people well, do my that. My 14 year old son, now I'm trying to teach my son to eat in por- like proportionate manners. It's like, hey, bud, like sure. that was a bite for a dinosaur. Let's try and, let's try and, let's yeah. try and bring that down. I mean, my little my kids wife do that has too. A, uh, it's like this, especially it's like shove my, as my, much as you can. <laughs> yeah. Like my, for a while, my third son, who also is named Titus, or my third child, my second son. Titus, he would do like, hey, dad, big bite, you know, and he would take this massive <laughs> bite. How much can he shove in his mouth? And he's like, not even three. It's exactly. like, yeah, this is, this is not going to end well. Like we, we See, it's know. funny. Yeah. It's funny when a two-year-old does it. It's not funny when a 14-year-old yeah, does it. When it's it's yeah, just gross. You're right about that. No, you're gross. right. The cute, so my the wife has a, is not there. Yeah. My wife has a superpower where if my youngest son knocks, if he asks me to blow on his, or if he asks for his food to be, you know, cooled down, if I try and do it, it does nothing. Like I'll blow on it for an hour. doesn't matter. Mom, my wife has mom. to like just blow from across the room. Right. And it's like, oh, it's all good now. It's ready to eat. I'm like, Word. what is this angel breath? I, I don't get this. Word. What is with this? There's Anyways, something uh, unique about mothers. <laughs> exactly. Their abilities. Well, today is a fun subject. I don't have a segue. We couldn't think of one, so it's not necessary. Other than sure. we're just going to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, a subject that's very important to the Christian life. It's important to how the Bible will affect you and affect your relationship mm-hmm. with the Lord. And I will tell you, it is a subject that Justin and I probably have already talked about for the last hour and a half and could talk about for another five hours. Uh, it is something we're very passionate about. So sure. today, I'll just throw it, I'll set us up and we'll just kind of go from, from here, JP. We are going to be discussing how one engages with God's word in interpreting it. How is it that we read it, yeah. understand it, and then apply it? And everyone would assume, well, let's just back up. I'm not going to say everyone assume. I, I was raised thinking that we simply need to read God's word in context and just take it at face value and then apply it as we have read it. And that that we aren't going to allow any creed or a confession or a system or another church or a denomination to tell us how to read the Bible, that, that the Holy spirit yeah. can come in and illuminate God's word and he can bring the truth of God's word to apply to my heart. I just need to make sure that I read it and that the Holy spirit lives within me and I will have proper application. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, this is maybe set up 2.0, but you'll hear people talk about reading the Bible as though we can come to scripture without any presuppositions as though there's nothing, you know, we don't have anything in our backpack already. And so we just come kind of empty, ready to be filled, you know, and we can just take God's word on its own terms without any notions as to what any of this might mean or might not mean for us. Mm -hmm. And, and also you, you use the word system. This is another big thing. There are a number of slogans that are thrown around with the best of intentions, right? You'll you'll hear people say, no creed but Christ, um, right. no confession but the Bible, things like that. And we're not talking about creeds and confessions so much today, but you will also hear people, lambast is too strong, but they will at least imply that it's a negative thing that we would ever come to scripture with a theological system or with a theological framework. And so there are a lot of people who are allergic to that kind of language. Like you need to come not only with no presuppositions, but you need to come with no system of theology or no framework of theology. And not to bury the lead, I I think what we are going to talk about today is the fact that 
everybody has presuppositions when we come to Scripture. And secondly, everybody has a theological system. The question is whether or not your presuppositions and your theological system are any good. That's the real question. Right. You know, it's funny. Right. I mean, and even recognize that you have them. Correct. The recognize you have them, right. and then evaluate them biblically. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing: right. is that like we are not saying that we need all kinds of stuff that we would not get from the Bible in order to understand the Bible. That's not what we're saying. Mm-hmm. But we want yep. to look at the Bible on its own terms in its entire context, and then allow that to help us interpret each individual passage. And right. yeah, and so just very, very quickly, this is not to be punchy meaning this necessarily, but a lot of people will, will say like, we don't need, you know, don't read a theological system onto the text and, you know, no creeds, but Christ and all this kind of stuff as they wave their study Bible in your face. And it's like, well, what do you, what do you think those study notes are? I mean, those right. are, a, a, a you may define system. these terms. It's, it's systematic theology. It's biblical theology. It's a system, you know, in right. a framework. And whether you think it is or not, it's what it is. Yeah, almost every study Bible comes from a theological system. They're interpreting it from a from it a does. from a grid. Uh, and I, I'll, let's put it this way: if you didn't grow up on an island, you had and you had zero context for church at all, and you literally did start with Genesis chapter one, um, you know, you, you're going to have to by page chapter three and chapter four and chapter five, you're going to have to start creating some kind of an understanding and it's going to be a while sure. till you get the whole, cause the, the Bible is, is a big book full of different genres, but let's say you do have just a smidgen small, a bit of a uh, theological background. You live, you grew up in the United States or the UK or somewhere where the concept of the Trinity is not foreign. Almost everyone who reads their Bibles reads it with a Trinitarian system, meaning that the, the systematic theology of the Trinity, because what, what, what we mean by systematic, we mean you look at all of Scripture and you pull out what Scripture says about a specific topic and we formulate a conclusion about it. So we systematize the Scripture into a theological conclusion. We're teaching and doctrine, that, truth claims. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So we would say that the Bible concludes that God is trinity right he is he is three in essence one in person you you have this system that you put upon you mean the other the, the, three in person one in essence one in essence thank you as soon as i said it i was like that's i think that's reversed yeah it's like um, hold hold the phone so let's make sure we, hold the yeah. phone they're teaching <laughs> they're teaching heresy so anytime that you read yahweh jesus holy spirit you are not reading that apart from your understanding right. that this is a part of it. So these aren't three different gods. These aren't three different beings that are completely separate. One is, uh, one was created. One is eternal. You believe that all are eternal, all are equal, all are God, and, and you put that upon the text. And why do you believe that? It's because Christians through history have surveyed the entire Scripture and have seen where God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, and He is one God. And then have right. attempted to articulate that as faithfully as they can, according to the word of God. And we That's have right. the doctrine of the Trinity. And you're exactly right. Every Christian, in a Western context anyway, regardless of your theological framework, reads scripture from a Trinitarian perspective and come to the text with that presupposition. And, and if you don't, you're not a Christian. Legitimate. That's legitimate. Yeah. yeah. If you're not Trinitarian, that's exactly right. You are not historically orthodox. That's right. So I would say that 
from just the, that's the simplest example I can give for people is that if you are historically sure. going to hold to what Christians have held to from <laughs> the beginning of time, then you have to be Trinitarian and you're going to be reading scripture in that way. So that is where right. we use our systematic theology to help us interpret scripture. And what we're going to argue is that no, no one comes to the Bible and just reads it without a presupposition. We all have, are presupposing upon the text something about the text. And the question is, you have to determine what your presupposition is. I didn't realize I had a presupposition when I was growing up through high school and going through college until I learned about presuppositionalism. And then I learned about hermeneutics and interpreting God's word. And then I was taught a dispensational hermeneutic. I was taught to read the Bible from that perspective. But what I realized was when I was being taught dispensationalism in college and then in seminary, it wasn't foreign to me because it's what I had been taught my entire life. No one ever told me. I legitimately just thought I was opening God's word and I was just reading it for what it was. But I was actually putting upon the text this presupposition that was been that had been handed to me. And this is, I think, what we're trying to get at is that everyone has these. You just have to be able yep. to identify which one do you have. Yeah. So you, you've used a couple of terms. You, you already defined systematic theology. Uh, another word that you threw out there is hermeneutics. And what that means is a method of biblical interpretation. Like how do we understand right. the Bible? And then you also right. talked about biblical theology. And what we mean by that is understanding the progressive nature of God's unfolding revelation as it pertains to the whole story of scripture and that story being right. the redemption of his people. And so that inevitably when we have this conversation about how we understand the Bible, we are talking in terms of hermeneutics, interpretation, we're talking in terms of biblical theology and systematic theology and all of these things matter for us That's as right. we come to the text and aim to make sense out of it. Mhm. Right. And I know I know that there are people who say, well, do you have to go to seminary in order to no. interpret God's word rightly? And I would say a lot of people who went to seminary don't interpret God's word rightly. It's how we got heresy. Uh, sure. No, I don't think so. There's nothing in scripture that demands that or commands that. I, and this is not what this podcast is about. This podcast is not about right. helping us really um, look at the text and maybe use the text to help govern as we concluded Trinitarian theology from the text, there are other overarching theologies that help us interpret all of Scripture. So one of the things that is very important in hermeneutics, when you're giving the explanation of a text, you're, you're, you're exposing the, the meaning of a text, there are words that are being thrown out there that every interpreter of God's Word, no matter what their theological system is, is going to understand this, right? Like, we're going to look at the grammar of the text. What is the actual grammar telling us? If you're a serious Bible interpreter, that's important, right? Yeah, the grammar and even the syntax, meaning like the the structure of the sentences and how things hang together. Absolutely, we're all going to do that. Right, and this is important in any type of reading. If you're going to read history, a letter, reading a document, right? Reading comprehension is important. So, yes, we 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 want to start with the the basics of the grammar, and then we understand that the the Bible was written in a historic document form most of the time. There's it was and written it's, in it's history, written like in it's, a historical context in time and space, like right. events that are happening. Right. Sure. So we we're going to look at the the grammar. We're going to look at the history and. 
there are different, you know, I would say the dispensational model and the covenantal understanding of scripture both would hold to a grammatical historic understanding of scripture. Absolutely. That the grammar is important, it's it's vital, and the history is important. Then there's a word that's used and and I think is very important. When you're reading something that, and you're looking at the grammar and you're understanding it from a historic standpoint, you have to understand the context, right? Who wrote this? And then there's a really important concept that I was taught in college and in seminary is what is the author's intention in writing what he wrote, right? So right. all of that is pushing you towards, uh, uh, is you're following the text along the way. So grammar, history, authorial intent. Um so that, Absolutely. I would say anyone who's serious about Bible interpretation, those are some ground rules that everyone's going to hold on to. Now, this is where things are going to start to change, right? This is where we would say your system is going to influence what happens next. Sure. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and positively state some things that you and I agree about, John, and that we right. at Theocast agree about that are... I don't think controversial at all, and no. and we'll move forward from there. So we've you've already talked about the the grammatical situation, the historical situation, and how we want to take those things seriously. And you've also mentioned authorial intent, like what was the intent of the author? Those things mm-hmm. all matter. And there is something that we would contend that is is perhaps even greater, and that is the the historic Christian confession and acknowledgement that there is one divine author of Scripture, that That's the right. Holy Spirit inspired men. He did not usurp their personalities. He inhabited them you know, and their personalities and, and had them write down exactly what he wanted written down. And this is a great work of God as he superintended the process of, of revelation. And so mm-hmm. given that there is one divine author of Scripture, we are also concerned not just with the human author's intent as much as he understood it. Moses, you know, pick your pick your writer. You know, David, right? The 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 evangelists that, who wrote the gospels, the the apostles who wrote New Testament epistles, etc. We are concerned with God's intention. What did God mm-hmm. intend to reveal through? these particular passages of scripture as his revelation continues to unfold. And it would right. be, Hey, Justin, can I, it, can I just yeah, please. interject real quick, please? A, a great, a great passage that's used just to defend and explain what it is that you meant by the Holy spirit is the one governing what's going on. A uh, second Peter one twenty one says Beautiful. for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. So yeah. the, the belief that God, the author is the one who is influencing and moving what should be said and why we can call it perfect and infallible because right. it is the divine author, God through the spirit yes. giving. And, right. Yes. Yeah, second Peter one is, is I think, Perhaps the most clear text, Second Timothy three sixteen. You know, all Scripture is breathed out by God. By God, um, so yep. correct. So, I mean, we we understand that God is again inhabiting the the personalities and even the minds of men, not overcoming them, but inhabiting them, so that they write, you know, what He intends to be written down as they are carried along by His Spirit. Absolutely, and so right. we we would be irresponsible to not consider the the divine author's intent in every 
passage of Scripture. What is God doing from Genesis to Revelation? What is God telling us about him and and about, about himself, about us, about his ways with us, about the way of salvation and redemption? And we want to interpret every passage of Scripture in light of that grand design that God has. And so then we've got to start asking some questions like, where would we understand those things? How would we understand you know, the, the grand authorial intent of Scripture that comes from God himself? So, Justin, to that point, we now have mentioned context and now the greater context. So when we are interpreting God's Word, we always have to look at the greater context of all of scripture. So there is the, there's the grammar, there's the history, there's the immediate context. Let's just take as an example, Genesis 3.15. This will be crowned of where we end up unfolding all of scripture for us at this moment. But Genesis 3.15, the immediate context, uh, Moses is the author, right? And the grammar tells us that he is giving us a history in somewhat of a, some would say a poetic form. Uh, Much of the Old Testament was written often so that it could be sung and memorized by music. And so there's a, there's a poetic nature to what he's writing, but it's clearly the unfolding of a history and the author's intentions. This is where things can get a little muddy because we don't look at scripture on a, a greater context. This is where the evolution and creation debate comes into somehow we are thinking the author's intention is to prove seven day little creation. And we're not even going to get into that. That's a whole nother podcast for another day. But no, the author is Moses, who is writing to uh, the people of God, who just became the people of God in this reinstated covenant or a new covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant. And they have no idea who God is. 400 years, 430 years in Egypt completely paganized. I mean, what do they do the moment they get out into the right. wilderness, right? They are worshiping idols. They're building idols. It's, 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 this, it's this gross worship of other gods. So Moses comes in and says, you need to understand who it is that you just made this covenant with. You, you, so the context is important to interpret Genesis 3.15 and following, or even the first three chapters of Genesis. You have to read it in the context of the law, and really in the in understanding Genesis. So to understand Genesis, you have to understand Exodus. And much of scripture is reading and then going back, reading and then going back, because it will help explain to you right. why what was written exactly. ahead of time. Right. So we don't act, the Bible right now isn't actually structured in most Bibles, aren't structured in chronological order. They're structured in more of a systematic and understanding uh, uh, different genres. So when we understand scripture, we have to understand that it wasn't written as if a story begins in the beginning and then it ends in revelation. Yes. That's, that's how those books are structured as far as like, it literally says in the beginning and then revelation ends, but everything in between doesn't quite fit that way. Yeah. No, your example is really good. So Moses wrote the first five books of scripture. And a lot of times, I don't know that this registers with everybody, but he is writing at a period of history that is much, much later than obviously yeah. what happened, you know, that he's writing about in the book of Genesis. I mean, Moses comes along much, much later. And so what is he doing? Of course, to your point, he's recording history and what happened. And I mean, we would contend he's recording history in a redemptive historical way. We'll get to that maybe more in a minute. So he's right. recording that history, but he's also trying to help, to your point, to help the people of Israel even understand who they are and where they came from and what the point of their existence is. 
Because, yeah, they were in Egypt for 400 years, and now they've been rescued from slavery, and God parted the Red Sea and did all these crazy things. Now they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they've been given this law, and it's like, what in the world does all this mean? And and Moses is giving them that. Go ahead. Yeah, and I just want to interject. If you want to know what the authorial intent of Moses is when he's writing the first three chapters of Genesis— these people are polytheist, means that they believe in multiple gods. It is part of Egypt. It is what Israel's plagued with for hundreds of years. It is the, it's like in the, it's one of the top 10 commands, right? The 10 commands, sure. you should serve one God. The, so Moses is writing and proving. Gods. Right. Moses is battling and, and saying, no, you can no longer be a polytheist because there aren't multiple gods. There is one God who created all things, including you. Uh, that's yeah. the authorial intent. And he owns you. And the reason I yeah. right, and the reason I can say that with confidence is because of the greater context of the law. Reading back from Exodus back into Genesis, I can see. Oh, okay, this is what Gen- This is what Moses is doing. And I just think that's a helpful example of saying there's the immediate. Right. Con- so there's grammar, there's history, there's the immediate context, and then there's a greater context, which would be all of the law. And now I would yeah. say there's even a greater context. Sure. We are excited to announce that we have a new free ebook available at our website called Faith Versus Faithfulness, a primer on rest. And we, the host, put this together to explain the difference between emphasizing one's faith in Christ versus emphasizing one's faithfulness to Christ, and how one leads to rest and how the other often to a lack of assurance. And you can get this at theocast.org slash primer. And if you've been encouraged by what you've been hearing at Theocast, we'd ask you to help partner with us. You can do that by joining our Total Access membership. That's our monthly membership that gives you access to all of our material that we've produced over the last four years, or simply by donating to our ministry. And you can do that by going to our website, theocast.org. We hope that you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Yeah, John, let me use some maybe slightly different terms to continue to clarify what we mean here. You were talking about the immediate context, and that might be the the book itself uh, within which these these words, these events are contained, and the intent of the author of that book. There is a, a greater context that you described that we might even say is a particular epic of redemptive history. And then there is an even greater context, which would be the entire revelation of God and the grand plan of redemption that God has uh, that has existed for since before time began and will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we want to understand Scripture and interpret Scripture on all of those levels, all of those horizons, immediate context, the epic of redemptive history that we're in, and then the context of the entire Bible, the whole canon, and the grand story of redemption that Scripture reveals. So an observation for me, bro, on this is you hear some people say and argue that it is wrong to do what you just did, to to read something that occurs later and then understand something that came earlier in light of it. So you just did right. it with Genesis and Exodus. There will right. be some who would who would press back against that idea, particularly when we come to try to understand the entire Old Testament. And then we will say, well, you need to understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Some will press back on that, that idea. So I just want to be really clear that where we stand here at Theocast is that the best interpreter of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New Testament. And so we care 
about. So if we're going to talk about that, that grand intent of Scripture, the grand authorial intent of God, how would we best interpret an Old Testament passage? Well, we would want to understand how Jesus and the apostles understood the Old Testament if we're going to faithfully understand it ourselves. We would not just go to the Old Testament and isolate it in its immediate historical context, but we would say, no, how did Jesus, how did Paul, how did Peter, how did these guys, by the inspiration of the Spirit, understand Isaiah, understand the Psalms, understand the book of Moses? And then we take our cue from them in how we would interpret it, preach it, apply it, understand it. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful. So I, I, we've, we've kind of thrown some big stuff out there and I think it'd be helpful for us to, to maybe give some, some explanation. When you go to the Bible, you do have to answer a particular question. What is the Bible about? Is it a random? Was that the original intention? It was, yeah. Was it random? Is it, well, here's some information about Israel and you know, here's, now here's some information about the law and well, now here's some Psalm and Proverbs and, and here's some prophecy about when Jesus comes back. Oh yeah. And there's this Jesus guy. No. Okay. Well now let's talk about Jesus right. in the new Testament. And we, 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 we chop the Bible up in it's, there's no, <laughs> there's no fluidity to it at all. There's no continuity. It's all discontinuity. It, it, it can be a jumbled mess. And we would say when you interpret scripture, there becomes a theme. And I would say that theme is introduced to you at the beginning. So Genesis 1, you understand there is a God who is the creator of all things, and he is sovereign, meaning there is no other God than he is. He is powerful, he is sovereign, and it's introduced to us in his capacity in the beginning. And then very early on in the story, we are introduced to the relationship that God develops between humanity and himself, right? So God walks with humans. He has a relationship with humans. He even uh, puts them as responsible for his creation and in, then even gives them uh, some some regulations. These are things you will not do. Don't eat of the tree. These are things you will do. Uh, govern and procreate. And then immediately, what does humans do? They're tempted by Satan and they fall. So so within three chapters, it's it's like this immediate introduction to God, man, and relationship with God. And the relationship between God and man doesn't last very long until it's separated by sin. Immediately when the separation happens, there's a promise. And this this promise was always lost to me. I don't know why it was never emphasized, but God makes a promise to Eve and he says, Eve, through you and your seed will come we call him the snake crusher. I mean, he, he's going to come yeah. and his, he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he will bruise his heel. Well, that's a very weird phrase. What yeah. does that mean? You know, it's kind of like, well, it, it's, it's this metaphor that gets greater and greater explanation. But I will tell you from the story in Genesis, you do see Adam and Eve anticipating this yes. child being born to fix so Adam and Eve lived in the garden. They were cast out of the garden. The garden was protected. And Adam and Eve are anticipating this child fixing what they broke because this is what yes. God promised. And the question that remains in everybody's mind as you're reading this is, well, who's the seed? Who's the seed? Right? Who, Who is, is the he? seed? I don't know how you can't interpret the Bible with that immediate context 
influencing you. It's not like as if God changes plans and goes, okay, now I'm going to do something different. I decided I'm going to have a nation and the whole Bible becomes about a nation. Yeah. And that's disconnected from the, the previous promise made to Eve. Right. Well, brother, I would contend in the spirit of what you just said, beginning with Genesis 3.15, we understand that the rest of scripture from that point forward is an unfolding of that plan that God revealed there in that verse, that there will come one who will crush the head of the serpent, who is the devil. Right, who will who will conquer the great enemy of God's people, who will right every wrong and who will fix what Adam and Eve broke. That's exactly right. Right. And so I would contend that if we're talking about the Old Testament prior to Christ's arrival, the entire Old Testament, it is undeniable that it is forward looking. There is always this, this gaze that is fixed to a time in the future when something will happen that will fund like absolutely unequivocally save God's people, right? Like, and, and it will be accomplished. It will be done. And then that guy shows up on the scene. And then all of the revelation that comes after him is explaining further what he accomplished and then what that right. means for life in the church, you know, the, the new people of God. Right. And so, yeah, it, it really burns me up. I mean, I, I've just, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to be punchy or anything like that but it burns me up when people will say well you know what Isaiah is saying is is fundamentally not about Jesus it's it's really about Israel it's not about Christ and I'm just or or mm. what David is writing about is is about Israel and you know about his kingly line it's not about Jesus it's like well okay I I want to be I want to be gracious to you and and understand what you're trying to say and, and, and assume well of what you mean and all of that. And, and I get it that there's an original context and that there's that, that epic of redemptive history, but holy smokes, is it not clear that Isaiah and David and all the writers of the Old Testament are looking forward to Christ who would come? And so, of course, right. we understand them in light of, of Jesus and in light of how Jesus understood them and in light of how the apostles understood Jesus to fulfill everything that was written in the entire Old Testament. And to not do so would be, I think, irresponsible at best and maybe, I don't know, insane at worst. But <laughs> I, I will, I will ref- restrain myself there. Um, yeah, dude. I mean, it's right. just like even Genesis. Like you talk about the creation account in Genesis. The point of that, like you already said, is to, it's to establish who God is, how humans you know, were made in his image and how he owns us and how he requires things of us our relationship to him. But then I would even contend that in reading Genesis 1 to 3, we immediately are thinking about what God reveals in Revelation. If we're not, we're misguided because you you see the fulfillment of that creation and the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life and everything that's in it. You see the fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth and the heavenly city and the Tree of Life that's there and how all of this stuff that was broken is restored and God is now with man and he is their God and the Lord is with right. them, you know, and all of that. Right. Um, well, yeah, brother. And, let me go. Let's go, go to let's go to the words of Christ here, real quick. Luke chapter twenty four, verses forty four and following. Jesus in response. It's never bad to quote <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> right? I'm not. I'm not going to be that guy. Let's go to the red letters. <laughs> They're all inspired. Uh, the black yeah. ones are inspired, like the red ones are. <laughs> like but here we go to the red ones. ones. 
Exactly. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, this, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. So, and then you have uh, you have Jesus literally saying that the law and the prophets were written about me, and he, and he says it's not in a, in a positive. This isn't a negative. Like if you, this is John. Uh, John, is it John six or John five? I can't remember. John five. Uh, John five. John five forty. Yeah. If you would have believed in Moses, you would have believed in me. For Moses wrote of me. So now I will, let's make some clarifications. There's some there's some miscommunications here. We are not saying that every you can find Jesus in every verse of the Old Testament. That somehow there's a there's a connection to every little thing that was ever written by Moses. No, the point of it was the greater context, the purpose of what Moses is writing is the redemption of Israel or of God's people in history. And so Jesus is pointing back to the law, back to the prophets, back to the Psalms saying, they are meant, they are speaking of me. The context, the greater context, the overarching purpose, I would say, of the Bible is to reveal to us how God is going to fulfill the promise he made to Adam and Eve, which then was further made to Abraham, which then was further yes. made to his sons and then to Moses and then to David and then to yes. Israel and the prophets, that there is coming one who is the greater, the greater, the greater, the greater priest, the greater prophet, the greater king. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, what is he described as? He is described as our prophet, priest, and king, which is yep. the entire Old Testament system. The entire yep. Old Testament system He's, is a prophetic kingdom, priestly kingdom. Yes. So yeah, I mean, just John five is incredibly important. You already referenced John five forty six, but in John five thirty nine, Jesus is talking to his Jewish audience, and he says, "You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal, you life, have eternal life, and it is mm -hmm. they that bear witness about me." You know, and and so yeah, like he Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist pronounces him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and. There we should be thinking about a whole host of things, but in particular uh, the Passover lamb and all the lambs that were slaughtered, you know, to uh, to fulfill Israel's obligations in the sacrificial system, so that they might have their, you know, uncleanness dealt with, so that they could then be a part of the people again. But then, I mean, the the book of Hebrews, brother. I mean, my goodness, if we're going to talk about uh, <laughs> biblical theology and we're going to talk about how to interpret Scripture and how to understand the Old Testament, there might be no book more valuable than Hebrews where we understand mm. that that Jesus is greater than angels, he is greater than Aaron who was the the first high priest, you know, instituted um in he's Moses's brother, you know, and he's the he's instituted as a high priest. He is Jesus is greater than Moses, you know, and Moses was a prophet unlike any other. And then we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has come before, including the sacrificial system. And we read that, you know, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but the blood of Christ can. And that he has accomplished redemption and that he is seated at the right hand of God and that God's people have been perfected for all time and that he has saved them and it's done. And that all the priests who came before him died and so there had to be a lot of them, but he lives forever and makes intercession for them and has, has saved them and, and we'll see to it that they will be with him forever. And so, yeah, we are not trying to force something down onto the scripture that's not there. We are just taking our cue from Christ and the apostles to interpret the entire Bible 
in light of God's purpose, which is right. to accomplish his plan of redemption that he made before the world began. And we are unashamed, because God is unashamed, that that plan would be accomplished through Christ and him alone. And so this kind right. of Christ-centered, redemptive, historical understanding of Scripture comes out of the text. And then we read the entire thing in light of it. And right. brother, last thing, I know we say this stuff all the time, but it needs <laughs> to be said. It needs to be, the, the drum needs to be beaten constantly because people always are one, like, is it responsible to interpret the Bible this way? Is it right, mm. you know, to be, to preach this way? Is the point of every passage of scripture, Christ and the redemption accomplished by him ultimately? And my, mm. I would stake my ministry on it. Yes, that is the ultimate point <laughs> of every passage of scripture. All right, I, I'm going to stop. Yeah. Go. No, it's I'm good. Calm down. It's good. I'm take a breath. I, it's, no, it's helpful. So I would say what we're trying to argue here is that the redemption, that, that the Bible is the story of how God redeems sinners through Christ, the overarching. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't sub stories and subcategories. Of course, that, there are uphold yeah. that right um every everything in the old testament is up underneath that because it doesn't help like here's here's the thing if you're going to base your entire relationship between you and god the creator of the world on the relationship and the words of jesus because jesus says you cannot get to the father unless you get through me that's a big statement mm -hmm. if we're going to trust jesus and believe that that's true that my eternity is staked on a man named jesus saying only eternal life happens through me. It's the only way. If you're going to believe that, you better be sure that what he is saying is trustworthy. The Old Testament is the proof that Jesus is trustworthy, but we don't see it that way. We see the Old Testament as there's these moral values and there's this whole uh, system by Israel and Israel becomes the point of the Old Testament. I mean, everyone today, I can't, Christians everywhere I meet them, they're talking about last times and Israel and this, and they read their Bibles with a newspaper in hand as if somehow that's the point yeah. of the Bible. And I'm like, <laughs> actually, you're missing the point here. This is, this is the majority of scripture is the revelation of how Jesus Christ wins, not how we should be terrified of that's what right. the world might do. And I would say there's a couple examples of this, and then we're going to have to move into the the members section, which I, I definitely have some thoughts there. So two thoughts, and then Justin, I'll let you have your, I know you're going to, you're going to respond to this. I'll, I'm going to just say you can respond and then we'll go to members. First uh, Corinthians okay. 15, 45. These are the type of patches that I'm talking about that we can use and say, okay, this helps us understand. It, it, it's this rainbow effect where we go back to Genesis and say, okay, let's read this again. Uh, Paul talks about there's two atoms, right? The first atom, this is what he says. The first atom became uh, a, li a living being, the last Adam mm -hmm. became a life-giving spirit. Well, he's mm -hmm. using this this language of two atoms. Well, we understand where Adam failed, Christ succeeds, and we're using all of Scripture to answer the question, how is it that Christ becomes the life-giving Adam? And then you also have in Ephesians where Paul is interpreting all of Scripture for you, and he gives you a story that the Old Testament doesn't hand you. You don't get this story until you get to the New Testament. Uh, so this is Ephesians chapter two. And just for the sake of time, I'm just going to read um, a section of where it says in verse four that he chose us 
uh, that, uh, sorry, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That's he Ephesians predestined one, us right? for yeah. Ephesians one. I'm sorry. He predestined us for adoption to sons to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Paul is saying God's plan of redemption started before Genesis one. So right. we have later on Paul interpreting not only the Bible, but all of God's will and all of redemptive history, or I would say of all of history of the Bible, explaining that it is the unfolding of this. Like, how do you get to the adoptions of sons? Well, right. he's telling you that started before Genesis 1 started. Yeah. All right. So a couple thoughts before we head to the members area. Jesus is not only the new and better Adam, it is quite clear that Jesus is the better Israel as well. How would we right. how would we see that in scripture? Well, one one example that I think is very clear is if you consider the beginning of Christ's ministry, uh, not only is he baptized for the sake of his people, uh, that also I think would would point back to how Israel, you know, the language of scripture is that Israel is baptized in the waters of the Red Sea. But then before Jesus is tempted by Satan, he is in the wilderness for 40 days. Well, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And then Jesus will quote to Satan, he'll quote scripture from the book of Moses, which is from you know that era of redemptive history. And Jesus succeeds where Israel failed, and he obviously succeeds where Adam had failed in the garden, you know, in, in succumbing to the temptation of Satan. So Jesus is the greater Adam, he's the greater Israel. And so even in understanding what Christ came to accomplish, he is he is accomplishing what Israel failed to do. And he is, he is the better son of God. And so it's appropriate that we would understand Israel in light of Christ and what he was coming to do. And just one maybe punchy thing, if you'll allow me to say it, and I'm not trying to upset anybody, not trying to upset anybody. So we are, we're reformed here at Theocast and we are covenantal in our understanding of scripture And we have talked about covenant theology at various points. We've got a a teaching series on that that we would commend to you as well that is apart from the regular podcast. But sometimes friends of ours, John, will levy criticism against us, against Reformed covenantal types, and they'll say, well, we are aiming to read the Bible literally. And you guys are, are not trying to do that in the same way. And I would say, well, I, I don't agree with you. Because when you say that you are reading the Bible literally, you don't mean that when Jesus will say something like, I am the door of the sheep. Well, you don't believe that Jesus is literally saying that he's a door. And you'll say, well, no, of course not. Right. He's, he's using the language of metaphor there. To which we would say, exactly, which is what we say about Scripture often, is that not all of the revelation is the same kind, that there's a lot of metaphorical, figurative language uh, that has a greater meaning than what is right there on the page in front of you. Or, you know, for example, you know, these friends of ours who will say, we're taking the Bible literally, will then, you know, read about um, scorpions or something in the book of Revelation and say, well, those are, you know, Apache helicopters or something. You know, and it's like, okay, well, <laughs> I thought you were meaning to read the Bible literally. Literally. Like, which is it, brother? <laughs> Help me. You know, because right. it seems that you too are are understanding that there are various kinds of literature in scripture and you are more or less literal as you frame it depending on what passage we're talking about and what the text is saying. And so you need to understand that that's all we're doing. We just have a different theological system than you. 
And now let's go to the text and evaluate our systems and see whose is better. That's right. Frankly. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'll, I will say there's two, uh, we're going to, I'm going to respond to that in the members podcast. Oh, I do man. have some things yeah. to say. That's so good. Sorry. I brought uh, up there Apache are, helicopters. Anyway. Yeah, there's fine. There are four things I'm going to recommend that will be in the, in the notes. Let's make sure we put these in the notes for, for a uh, four re- resources. One, our new series on covenant theology. The first two episodes will go into deep explanation of what we've been trying to say here as far as a redemptive historic understanding of scripture from the covenant of redemption. I would also recommend a couple of books. Um, the, the easiest one, first one would probably be uh, Sam Renahan's book on the mystery of Christ, the covenant and his kingdom. His first yep. three chapters are excellent for redemptive historic understanding of scripture. Um, Michael Williams, far as the curse is found, uh, the covenant story of redemption is also a great book. Um, I don't agree with everything he says in there, but I think his opening few chapters are excellent and then if you want one that's like hard give it to, to read give it to but him. it's it's the foundation that a lot of guys hold to it's called biblical theology by boss old and new your Testament. hardest boss your hardest boss which man what a great name boss mm-hmm. Gear hardest boss. Anyways, um, and those would be our recommendations. Uh, you can you'll find all of those on our website and go to theocast.org, find this episode, and you'll be able to find all of that there. So Word. in our members section, it we are gonna talk about how all of scripture is Christian scripture. There's no such thing as Bible that is just for the old testament yeah, it is. people and Bible for the New Testament. Uh big mistake. We don't we ignore the old testament oftenly. And then second, I believe your method of interpretation will influence how you see assurance and the point of assurance of the believer. So I will just say this. I think the redemptive historic covenantal perspective of scripture is what brings assurance to the believer. It's the point and other systems tend to cause you to doubt your assurance. So I don't disagree. All right. So if those of you don't know what we're talking about, we have a membership. It's a way for everyone that would like to support Theocast can do so. And we just provide extra content like additional classes, some online live streaming, different resources. You can go to theocast.org to uh, learn more about how to support us and be a part of our membership. We'll see you over there.